Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who is the Emmy award-winning Yankee play-by-play announcer for the Yes Network. He also hosts the network's signature show, Center Stage. In November of 2016, he was inducted into the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame. He was inducted into the New York State Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame in October of the same year. The following month, he was awarded the Lou Gehrig Sports Award by the Greater New York Chapter of the ALS Association. And he has also received the Vince Scully Award for Excellence in Sports Broadcasting from WFUV Radio. It has taken me 16 years to get to say this. I am so thrilled to finally have the opportunity to say... Roseman, Carter, K, and you on Sports Talk New York as we welcome the one and only Michael K. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, actually, my pleasure. Something I've looked forward to for a really long time. Uh, congratulations on the outstanding new book. Um, and it's interesting because you get great insight right off the bat in the dedication. Um, and was something that resonated with me is you dedicated part of it to your sister, Debbie, and her family. And it had to deal with your barrage of questions before you got your job. And I think it's in the DNA where the great interviewers of our time just have a heightened curiosity and find you know people and what makes them tick fascinating. When did you know that you actually had that in you? You know what is weird? I guess it was since I can remember. I always wanted to know things. You know, I, I wanted to know how did somebody become something? How did somebody get to this point? And it didn't have to be a famous person. You know, I'd look at somebody in, in the street and they're walking down the street and I'd say, wow, how did that person get to that point? Even when I was like 10 years old, I always wondered that stuff. And um, it, it's probably why I was a pretty good date because I didn't really talk that much. I'd listen and people like to talk about themselves. So if you could like let people talk about themselves. Usually they'll reveal something that they, they probably didn't think they were going to reveal. It's also interesting because then Bob Costitz, you know, adds another dimension to what makes you a great interviewer. Uh, the time you spent it as a newspaper writer, he points out that a reporter does his job honestly and well. His powers of observation and eye for telling detail are essential. So how important was your time at the Post and Daily News for laying that foundation for your skills as an interviewer? Well, I, I think it's probably pretty important simply because of the fact you look at it, you go, all right, you, you've got a situation where you've got to get information right away, right away, and you've got to get it done in a hurry. So you've got to get your question in and out. And I think the key to any interview is to let the person talk because the more somebody talks, the more information they're going to give you. I'm sometimes amazed when I hear interviewers, um, the, the, the question is longer than it should be, and the longer a question is asked, I think the shorter the answer you get, because there's not much room for that person to go who's going to answer the question. So I just think that from a journalism standpoint, you don't have much time with the subject. So you got to get it in and out very, very quickly. You got to have quick hits and things like that. So maybe I've carried that over. But, um, you know, I just I had to find information out in a hurry when I was a writer. Now I have an hour to do it, but I still use that same technique. So it's interesting because you spent 18 years as the host of Center Stage, only missing two of the episodes, which is, is Cal Ripken-esque. Um, that's one-on-one long form, and you just mentioned that you know, when you're writing. 
How does the preparation change? Because sometimes in a post game, you don't know who you're going to speak to. So it's kind of off the cuff. Here you know who you booked and the research. So how does the prep for center stage differ from your, your day to day? Oh, man, so much different. Like um, once we book a guest for center stage, you know, we have a couple of producers that work on, on the show and they will send me, honestly, this is literally six to 800 pages of research on that person to read. So I read it, uh, read it all, and you want to know as much about the person as possible. And I was once, uh, I, I, I once heard somebody say that you should never interview somebody and not know every answer to every question that you have. And there's part of me that believes that, but then there's another part of me that goes, well, then you're never going to get anything new either. So I think that you should know the basic premise of what they're about and, and really have a good idea of what they're about. But you've also got to listen. And if you do a good job, you're going to find out stuff that's never been out there before either. So, yeah, I do preparation to the point that I know what they've said previously. I know all the answers that they've had previously. But I want to get deeper. I want to peel away more layers of the onion. And over an hour show, if you make somebody feel comfortable that it's a conversation and not an inquisition, you probably have a good chance to get that information out. So before we get to who's in the book and who's not in the book, uh, does Michael Kay have a white whale? Is there a person out there that you want to interview and you haven't gotten the opportunity to do it yet? Yeah, I got a couple. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, Michael Jordan, and uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, I'm surprised we can't get Seinfeld because we've had on Larry David, and Larry had a really positive experience on the show. Uh, and the only thing I can think of is that um, Jerry's a big Met fan. Maybe he doesn't want to be associated with the Yes Network. I'm not quite sure. So maybe I'll have to call on Gary Cohen to do that interview. <laughs> nice. Uh, so one of the other uh, great interviewers of our generation is Howard Stern. Your publishing company in 2019 published Howard Stern Comes Again. You mentioned how that book um, prompted the idea for this book. Howard's book, um, he said that what he wanted the book to do, represent the best work, but also show his personal evolution. Um, and as well as the, the evolution of popular culture. But I think you go even a step further right out of the box. You start your book with your interview with Alex Rodriguez, and you use it to not only capture that moment, but foreshadow the future. So was that a conscious effort on your part to add that extra dimension? Well, I thought that that was one of the reasons to do the book. Um, and obviously the Howard Stern book I read when I had the vocal cord surgery, so I couldn't talk for six weeks. I did a lot of reading and it motivated me. Now, unfortunately for me, I don't know if I've had as much evolution as Howard. I'm pretty much the same person I was 20 years ago. But, um, I think that when you take older interviews, some of the answers that somebody gives, because back in 2003, when we interviewed Alex and the reason we included it in the book, you know, everything was, you know, unicorn and rainbows. None of the bad stuff had happened. None of the bad stuff had expected to be happening. You know, that was when he was at the Texas Rangers. And if you just sit there and you, you kind of get a, an idea of, of what's going on in his answers, it, it foreshadows some of the things that were to come. And I think there's a lot of, of that in the interviews that we did. You know, like with Bill Parcells, he was a great guest. And I must have asked him five or six different times if he's going to return to coaching. Absolutely not. Never again won't happen, just there's no chance. And a, a, a month after the show came out, he took the job of the Dallas Cowboys. So I just think it's important to see the evolution of the guests and where they've come from when those interviews were done. I think that's what makes it a pretty interesting read. 
So just to piggyback on that, I assume part of the process of doing this book was to go back and watch the episodes. When you're watching those episodes, um, and you say you haven't evolved in 20 years, but I beg to differ because I've watched the show and I see little nuances. But when you're watching something from, you know, a couple of years back, do you ever say, hmm, I might have done that differently or, you know, I should have asked this, I should have followed up. Have you seen an evolution in just the way you approach interviews? Well, it shows you how shallow I am. The thing that I see <laughs> when I watch the old episodes is how my, my constant roller coaster weight. You know, like there's, there's a, there's the fat Michael era and then there's the skinny Michael era back to the fat Michael era, then kind of level off. So I, I watch that, but you know, anybody who says that they wouldn't do anything different, there's no perfect interview. So you probably would follow up differently, especially with stuff that you know now, but it's kind of interesting to see. And you know, I'm sure that people that read these interviews go, wow, this, this guy ended up doing this. I wonder why he didn't ask that. So I think that that's a fun part of the book as well. And also, you know, I want to be the best interviewer that I could be. So I would hope that I'm a, a better interviewer than I was when the show started 20 years ago. But when I said about the evolution, like Howard has really evolved as a, as a person. I, I'm pretty much the same person I've always been. I don't know if that's unhealthy or not, but maybe I just started out as a decent guy. But yeah, the only thing that's changed is that now I'm married and I'm a father. But uh, Howard's changed in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think he's changed for the much better. But uh, I even liked him before the evolution. Yeah, me too. Exactly. So, you know, you've interviewed a who's who in the sports and entertainment world. You could have grouped these interviews by sport or genre or, or a number of things, but the book is divided into four parts and it's, they did it their way. They showed us what is possible. They made us laugh. They pushed the boundaries. Not to get too deep here, but I, I'm a, a, an avid listener of, of the Michael K show. You easily could change the word they with he. And it kind of could be the Michael K story. So how agonizing of a process was it to get these groupings right? And looking back, is there anyone you would move to a different group now? The groupings were tough. And also to bring the, the, uh, the list down to 35. So we did 240 interviews. And um, I, I would have put everyone in but one, Dennis Quaid. <laughs> but... Um, uh, they, you know, the book company said the book would have been like 4,000 pages long. So that couldn't be happening. So we, we got it to 35 and really all of us, me, the editor, the publisher, we went back and forth. This person goes here. This person should go there. It was a very tough call, but I think that we got it in the right sections. I also love, you know, the Dennis Quaid story, how you just leaned into him and said, listen, I have a thousand questions. You can keep on just giving me yes or no, but you're going to sit here for the hour. And then he, he changed a little bit. So that, that was interesting. Even though he's not in the book, he is in the book. Um, over and above the actual interviews, I think your setups were what really makes the book. It was almost like watching VHS, uh, VH1 pop-up videos back in the day, uh, whether it be Bill Parcells asking for the questions prior to agreeing to the show and your response to it. Mike Tyson's uh, pre-interview ritual in his dressing room, uh, the Sly Stallone, Chuck Wepner interaction. But the one that would have had me freaking out, and I don't know if I would have been able to compose myself to do the interview, was with Serena Williams. Can you tell us the backstory, what transpired with that? She was, uh, she was just a no-show. She didn't show up, which was weird. And when you're doing a television interview, time is money. You know, if somebody doesn't show up on my radio show, okay, that's a phone call. It's no big deal. And then me, Don, and Peter will make fools of each other for 20 minutes, and you fill the segment. 
But when you don't have a television guest show up, that's a lot of money. I mean, the show, I just, just to like the camera people, the studio, it costs like forty, fifty thousand dollars just to set up. So if somebody doesn't show up, that's bad. So she just didn't, she wasn't there. And people started making phone calls, started making phone calls. And then finally got a hold of somebody that was connected with her. And they said, well, she's at Barney's. And I, I you know, to, to defend her a little bit, maybe she didn't realize that it, it was a hard time that she had to be there. But one of our producers, a woman, Janice Platt, went to Barney's, found her and said, you got to go. There are people waiting. You got to go. Let's just put these clothes that she had picked out, put it on layaway, put it away and come back. And Serena was kind of like startled and she did show up. She couldn't have been nicer. Ended up being a great guest in a great interview. But uh, getting her to the studio was a little bit of a challenge for sure. And it was all because she wanted to shop at Barney's. And you even mentioned that before the show, you popped into the dressing room not knowing what to expect. And she was like, you know, game face was on and totally changed her attitude. I'm just wondering, other than popping into the room, because you said that's important for them not to, you know, get the first interaction face to face on that stage. Do you have any other pre-show rituals that you've gotten accustomed to and you must do before each of those shows? You know what? It, I, I definitely don't want to leave the show in the dressing room. So I don't talk about anything on the show. I go in, shake their hand. Hello. So they don't see me for the first time when they walk out on stage. Some of them don't know me. Uh, another thing is my pre- pre-show ritual. And it seems like when you're in the studio, everybody wants to talk with you. Everybody. Even if it's just to talk about the Yankees. So I will retreat to a small room. And although I've read the, um, you know, the script, so to speak, many, many times before I even get to the studio, I want to read it one more time. It's so it's it's fresh in my mind before I go on stage and I have a bad memory. So something I read the night before, I might not really have on the tip of my tongue, so to speak. So I sit there and I go, you know, we have those blue cards that I carry on the stage that has each segment and, and the questions. Now, I don't ask the questions all that, that are listed because I'll go off on, on somebody's answer. But I definitely want to give that one more read. That's my ritual is just to give it one more read and then finish reading the last part. Uh, on the card just before they say, okay, Mike, we got to get on stage. So that's like really the last thing on my mind before I go on stage. You also stated in the book that when people ask you about your favorite of the more than 240 center stage interviews you've done, uh, the one that you always choose is Larry David. Although I have now heard you talk about Seth Meyers a little bit more on the show, but, but in the book you point to Larry David and you say the reason, which I, I think is so interesting, um, you say David is brilliant and you have to keep up with him or he'll devour you along the way. He knows what you're looking for in content, but he's going to make you earn it. And you relish the challenge of going one-on-one with one of the most facile, facile in- entertainment minds in the business of all time. Because of that statement, I actually went back to watch that episode. So I have a couple of questions here. First one is you just seem so relaxed with him, yet given what you said uh, about that interview, how were you able to stop your mind racing to, to wonder what he's going to say and to keep up? I stopped my mind um, like right away because he was very embracing. And that doesn't sound like Larry from Curb. And he's a lot like Larry from Curb, not as mean. But... I just had a real good vibe from him. Like he knew the rules of engagement and he was there to play and he knew exactly he'd seen the show. So he knew how it was going to go. And then it was just like playing tennis. I don't play tennis, but 
he's going to hit a good shot. I'll try to hit a good shot back. And I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I was nervous before the show just because of how intimidating his mind is. I mean, there aren't a lot of minds like that in the world. And uh, he brought it. He brought it. And he was he was unbelievable. So I definitely look at that as my top one. So secondly, one of my, and it might be one of my all-time favorite interchanges of any center stage show um, was when you're talking about his Yankee fandom and when you, he mentioned he cried over the Bill Mazeroski home run. You informed him that Mickey Mantle also cried over that game, too. And then, you know, only the way that Larry David could say, he said, oh, what a big baby. I was nine years old. He was a grown man. That is not in the book. And I was just wondering when you have such great material, which all of your interviews have, how agonizing was it to leave? I mean, for me, that's that's a gem right there. And, you know, how agonizing was it not to include that? It's tough. Again, what I what I learned about writing a book, I've never written one before, is that there are space limitations. Things have to be cut. And with him, I mean, you don't want to cut anything. But if you don't cut some stuff with him, then it's going to have to come out of somebody else's uh, transcript as well. So every single one of those with Larry David was agonizing. Then to carry it a step further, given the setup that you said about, you know, that interview and how it's your favorite you get a call about a year after doing this interview from Larry. And I have to, you know, to paraphrase Larry, I have to imagine it felt pretty, pretty good. Could you tell our audience what that phone call was about? Yeah, he called me up and said, listen, I've got to do a speech at my daughter's school, Emerson College in Boston. I promised I would do it and I hate doing this stuff. So I go, uh, OK, you'll be great. He goes, no, I hate it. I hate being on stage alone. I don't feel like doing it. hate talking about myself. I said, well, you know, you promised your daughter, you promised the school, you got to do it. He goes, well, here's what I want to have happen. I said, what? He goes, I want you to get in the car and drive to Boston. He goes, I'll set you up in a hotel. He goes, I want to do center stage on stage at Emerson. Just what we did on, you know, on Yes. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I want you to do that. So I was flattered and I drove up. I didn't stay. I just drove back to that, that night. And it was so much fun to just sit there on stage in front of these college students and, and Larry's daughter and do that same, not, I mean, it wasn't verbatim. It was just, it was a story of his life that the kids could hear. But the fact that he came to me to do it, that was quite flattering that he thought the, the, you know, the interview was so good. Yeah. It's the ultimate compliment for sure. There are, are lines in the book that take on greater meaning when you see them in, in the printed word, as opposed to when they, they're in a 60 minute, you know, interview. And the one that jumped out, to me was when you asked Jerry Jones um, what the best advice anyone ever gave him, to which he replied, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, once told me, if you are not undermanned, you are overstaffed, and you'll never get a chance to see who your heroes are. There are so many others within this book. What do you think is the single most profound thing anyone ever said to you on center stage? Well, I, I, you know what? I... You really hit me with a question that I hadn't been asked yet. I, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not quite sure. The most profound. I guess when I asked Sylvester Stallone who he would have in the foxhole with him, and he said Rocky, and I said, "But that's not a real person." But that wasn't that profound. I wish I had a better answer for you. I, I you know, you, I, I don't know. It's just I, I feel that with all of the interviews, obviously you read the book. I think you do get a, a window into people that are successful and what drives them. They refuse to accept defeat. Even if they've hit rock bottom, they will always bounce back. And it's this drive, this inner drive that makes people great. 
And I think that comes through on every single one of these famous people. That's what I get out of it. I can't remember one specific thing. So obviously with this press junket, you've probably done a million of interviews. If you could pick any one interviewer dead or alive to like Larry David did to sit down with Michael K, who would it be? I think it would probably be Costas or, or Larry King. Larry King is a different interviewer than anybody I've ever seen. You know, the, the preparation that I do for center stage, Larry King was the complete opposite. He, he would go out on stage. He said he didn't know anything about the guest, anything. And it would just wing it. And his curiosity made him a great interviewer. Sometimes it embarrassed him, too. And, you know, the aforementioned Jerry Seinfeld embarrassed him on stage, you know, when he asked him about, you know, why'd you, you know, why'd they cancel Seinfeld? And he said, Larry, do you even watch the show? They, they didn't cancel it. I, I left. So, you know, you expose yourselves that time sometimes as well when you don't prepare. But I, I guess I get what he's saying. You know, if you're going in there with a blank slate, you could ask anything. But uh, it would probably be, if I had to choose between the two, it would probably be Costas. He's brilliant. One of the best interviewers I've ever seen. And center stage, you know, it's kind of a, a hybrid of inside the actor's studio and the old, you know, Costas show later. So, yeah, I would definitely have probably Bob Costas. Nice. So where's the best place for people to get this amazing book? And since there are 35 of over 240 interviews, um, less the Dennis Quaid one, you know, there's an opportunity there for a center stage volume two. Uh, is that in the works possibly? Well, you know, the way book companies work, if it does well, it could be in the works. Uh, so far we came out last, um, you know, last week and it is doing well, but we'll see how well it does before we consider it because there were some very tough cuts to get to 35. I will tell you that. So we could definitely have another 35 and not really be, um, taking bad interviews, uh, where they could get it. They could get it wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, I'm actually, um, selling some out of the back of, um, my car, you know, so whenever you see me, pull me over and, you know, just, uh, I'll, I'll say, no, I'm kidding about that, but at, wherever books are sold, a lot of people buy stuff on the internet now. So Amazon, it's doing quite well there. And, uh, Support your mom and pop bookstores because they have it as well. Michael, I've had the opportunity to speak to you a few times at some of the baseball assistants um, dinners over the years as well at City Field uh, in, in the press cafeteria. I'm a longtime listener of the Michael K. Show with my good friend Don LeGrecker. Um, so it was great having you on our show tonight. I really appreciate you taking time out of a, a super busy schedule to, to be with us. Uh, maybe sometime we could get together and hang out at Donnie's indoor pool you know, and, and, and talk a little more. He's so wealthy, though. I don't know if he'll have that, Mark, but I appreciate you having me on. That was really kind. The Kester, the one and only Michael K.